Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. I'm here with Ronit Ghosh. Ronit is Global Head of Future of Finance Think Tank at City and leads influential work exploring the future of money and tokenization, uh, metaverse, Web3, many different things in emerging technology. Welcome, Ronit. Thanks for having me, Jess. So let's start by sharing with our listeners just a little bit about the team that you lead at City. Sure. My team is called the Future of Finance. It was set up two years ago, and it's part of a broader unit called City Global Insights. This is a think tank. My particular part of the think tank looks at the future of money and the overlap of money and technology. It's actually a very neat fit with how you described your podcast, Jess. So among the work that your team does, I know that you publish uh, City Global Perspectives and Solutions each year addressing aspects of digital money. Can you tell us a bit about that publication? So we have a report out recently, so at the end of March, called Money, Tokens and Games. And it looks at what's going to drive the scaling of blockchain adoption into billions of users and trillions, potentially tens of trillions of dollars of value. And the problem or the exam question tries to answer is, hey, blockchain's been around for now over a dozen years. Now, the actual number of users, if you like daily active users or monthly active users, is still minuscule. Many people joke that ChatGPT in 15 minutes probably got more users than blockchain's done in 15 years. And what we look at in the report is, why is that going to change and when is it going to change? And we call it money token and gains or money tokens and gains because we believe the growth of blockchain-based or blockchain interoperable sovereign money, CBDCs and similar tokens inside games and other activities are going to drive in the next five to seven years a significant increase in adoption. And I know a lot of folks, particularly if you've been in finance the last 10, 15 years, are going to be rolling their eyes at this point because blockchain has been so overhyped at times. But we believe that there are some real fundamental changes happening. And one of the themes we explore in the report is why money is different to other innovations or other technologies. Money is something that we as a community come together as a society and say, hey, this is value. And we do that normally via the you know, under the umbrella of the state or the central bank. And and that's why we think the central banks around the world, and Jess, you and I have talked about this a lot in the last three to six months, the fact that central banks around the world are ramping up their CBDC efforts, commercial banks are looking at tokenized deposits to build alongside or on top of CBDCs. All of this work is going on. This is, I think, going to be like a real inflection point or series break in the growth of blockchain-based money. And the games will come as well, but that's a, probably a separate conversation. So we talked about maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit more about Web3 and the concept of Web 2.5 and kind of tied that into other discussions around the metaverse. How has your view of the evolution of Web 2.5 changed over the last year? Web 2.5 is crucial. Some of the values and advantages of Web3 as an economic and business model or a culture, social model, and some of the values of blockchain as a technology, even if you accept those, the ability to have programmability in, in money, um, a 
atomic settlements, the ability to have tokenized or portable digital versions. And this is obviously a simplification, but digital versions of banknotes. Even if you all agree that's great, getting it to the consumer via the current Web3 interfaces doesn't really work. And you can see that with the numbers, right? If you look at the number of MetaMask users, it's in the low 20s of millions right now, daily active users. The advantage of Web2 or Web2.5 is that you get user-friendly interfaces that we can bring some of this great technology to the end user. The analogy we talk about in this report is most end users don't care the technology underlying a particular product or service is blockchain-based. Just like most of us don't care that Netflix is on, on the cloud. Most of us don't care. Most of us care that we get at our fingertips this huge amount of choice that we can consume to the streaming content. And I, I think about whether it's money or games related to blockchain in the same way. So it goes back to this, you need a web two and a half interface. In this world where we're going to, I think, particularly on the consumer side in the, in the, in the world of games, or in retail financial services, it's still going to be very much Web 2.5 driven. So in terms of Web 2.5, again, I think about, you know, Web 1, Web 2, Web 3, right? And you often times hear people say, read, write, and then own. And I always have questions around the own piece. I understand the read mm. piece and the write piece. Yeah. And then when we say own, what do we actually mean by owning. I heard somebody a little while ago describe it as having content out there that is created because of your interactions, but that you could essentially say, this is my content, this is my digital information, and I move from platform to platform when I feel like it. So I remove my yeah. digital content from one platform and fundamentally move it to another platform. And it made me wonder whether there are downsides to that view of own. When I think about other kinds of of platforms where their very value is determined in part by just the mass amount of information that is in one place. What are your thoughts around the own component? So I think implicitly you're raising the question of like, what is ownership about in a digital world? Most of my neighbors seem to own two or three cars. It's like suburban USA, right? Now in Dubai, because I moved from London and I've spent several decades in living in London, in a highly dense, highly urban environment where there's excellent public transport. I didn't own a car in London because I lived in central London. And when I moved to Dubai, I didn't feel the need to own a car. Now, pretty much everyone else I know in Dubai owns a car or several cars. And I'm like, why do I need to own a car? You could take that analogy to almost anything and say, if you can rent it, why should you own it? And so why are we taking these ideas of ownership this possessive idea into this, whether it's web two or web three world, you know, it's ultimately about enjoying and using a service, right? Or a product. Se the second point you're making, I think explicitly is the value sometimes of that, having that say content on, and it's not a plug for any particular social media platform, but you know, if you have your content on say Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, that platform does create value. It's not just you're owning it alone. It's a bit like, you know, you own a house, but you own a house in a neighborhood and the city council doesn't look after that neighborhood or the community doesn't look after the neighborhood. If the houses around you, the public services and utilities and roads 
are crumbling, you know, your house is not going to be worth very much. And if you have lots of really interesting restaurants and cafes and theaters next to your house, your house value goes up, right? You could have an amazing house, but in the middle of nowhere, and that's going to affect the value of your house. So ownership is never absolute. And so a few months ago, I think a lot of people were saying, hey, do I want to be on this particular? We all know which platform I'm talking about, but let's not call it out. We were all saying, do I want to be on this platform because there's a change in ownership? And you know, some of our, some of our friends didn't like the new owner. And many of them disappeared for a while and tried out other platforms. Several weeks went by <laughs> and they were all like, oh, you've got to follow me on this new platform. And then a few months later, we've all forgotten about these alternative platforms because most of us are congregated on this particular platform. Um, as I said, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And so how can we say that our digital content on that platform just standalone has value? So I think, I think there's a sort of line to be drawn between you know pure ownership standalone and then a kind of almost a side idea of shared ownership but going back to digital assets or a web through a blockchain economy there are certain things we like doing exchanging items you know ever since the start of collective society or human civilization we've exchanged gifts we've traded items and we've done that for five thousand years plus why can't we do that in a digital world well we can we can only do that within the confines of one platform. And we have to use whatever tokens that platform tells us has value. The benefit of using, again, a CBDC or a tokenized commercial bank money or something like that is that we can make it interoperable. We can take it outside that platform. It doesn't have to be used in that same single game. Also, it can be taken out more easily. Right now, well, you know, when my kids do in-app purchases, the money just goes one way, right? <laughs> I transfer fiat to my nine-year-old, and then the money goes one way. It just goes into the game. It never moves between games. It never comes out. So, you know, we, we trade items, right? We've been trading, you know, whether it's trading cards in school or, um, you know, you sell second-hand cars, you sell homes. Why can't we do that in a digital world? And that's, that's what programmable or tokenizable money allows us to do. So let's dive into that a bit, uh, programmable money and, and tokenization. And it actually makes me think of at the IIF's annual membership meeting last year, we had a panel where we discussed, uh, I think it was called the tokenization of everything. And whether it is money or other assets or non-financial kinds of assets that one wouldn't automatically think of how do you tokenize that and then do something with it or, or tokenize a representation of it and, and then make it liquid in some way. So let's talk about that. So what this year do you think are kind of the key aspects of tokenization and programmability that we should be thinking about when we talk about digital money? For markets development, three things stand out for me. One, we've talked about CBDC, so let's park that and come back to that. The other big change is what we call the buy side in finance, investors. How the buy side is looking at tokenized or digital securities 2.0. And the third area would be, we'd call out the corporate sector and trade finance and supply chain finance. So let's, let's start with the investor world, the buy side. What's different now to say five years or seven years ago is that 
there's a lot more interest from the large investors, the asset allocators of the world. These are trillion dollar companies who are going to the sell side and saying, hey, we would like to explore this, or we're already exploring this. What can you do for us? And the reason they're exploring it is that there are very obvious end use cases, particularly in illiquid assets such as private equity or venture capital, or in debt, particularly corporate debt that's less traded, that's less liquid compared to, say, S&P 500 equities. So there's a whole spectrum of illiquid or private assets where the buy side are looking for ways to bring in new investors. And these are often mass affluent or the lower end of private bank clients. So these aren't your typical large endowment funds and pension funds who are already fully invested in alternative assets. The, the buy side pushing is, I think, a new development in the last few years. And they are looking actively with the help of banks, the sell side, they're looking actively at how can we use blockchain technology, tokenization to facilitate this. The second area is the corporate space. So obviously there's been a lot of now failed blockchain-based projects in the corporate space and the trade finance space in particular. But one big change we see happening that we call out in a report is legal change in the UK that's happening likely this summer. So there have been uh, readings in Parliament already of the bill. This is the UK version of the, the bill that legalizes digitization of trade documents. Uh, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, and Bahrain, I think. S some of these more advanced city-states already have passed this into law. But the UK changing their law this year is a game-changer for trade finance because anywhere between 70 and 80% of trade finance is governed by UK law. So this is, this, is, this is a huge change. So when I look at it from the investor space, you're beginning to see a lot more work being done. Maybe it's like more proof of concept, but beyond proof of concept work being done already in the digital security space. And then in the trade finance space, we're seeing this real catalyst coming. Lastly, CBDCs, at the base of all of this, if we have tokenized commercial bank money or tokenized private assets and if you want the existing financial system to be sort of copied over or adapted to a digital 2.0 world or a tokenized world, I, I think, and this is my personal view as an analyst rather than a kind of bank view as city, but I think it, it would be great to have public money. So the M0, the central bank money at the base of the whole monetary infrastructure, that base money can also become some version of tokenizable so that when you have a contract being paid out, whether it's an in insurance or in a commercial or corporate bond or whatever it is, when a payment happens in this new world, there's an, there's an option to use central bank money, a CBDC, or we could use a tokenized bank deposit. But I, I, think, it, I think it's awesome to, it would be great to have a, and this is a wholesale CBDC, just to specify that I'm talking about. It'd be great to have a wholesale CBDC at the base of this new infrastructure, just like we do today, have central bank money. And most money in the world is, particularly in the Western world, uh, in the US and other countries, is private sector money, but it sits on top of public sector money. And I think that mental model for me or that economic model works really well. So I'd love to see that copied over into a digital money 2.0 world. 
it really is important to differentiate between wholesale CBDCs and potential retail CBDCs and what benefits or risks we see coming from either one of those. I know Augustine Karstens gave a speech in February from the Monetary Authority of Singapore that kind of laid out a vision for the future of the financial system from the BIS's standpoint. And one of those components seems to be a wholesale CBDC that is complemented by deposit tokens and perhaps by retail CBDCs that might act, you know, possibly as a substitute for deposit tokens in some cases in whatever jurisdictions decide to pursue a retail CBDC at the end of the day, in addition to the tokenization of other assets that, that may um, exist together and in a unified programmable ledger of, of sorts. And I, I think thinking about the, the wholesale CBDC is more of how you just described as a foundational, perhaps, piece seems to be in line with what that vision may lay out. And you make a really good point by saying we need to distinguish or differentiate between wholesale and retail CBDCs. Some countries, some jurisdictions might go for both. Some jurisdictions may just go for the wholesale CBDC. Retail CBDC is what typically gets media attention and in some countries political attention. And it can be a bit of a political hot potato subject. And obviously that's a decision that each individual country and the policymakers of that country and the, the government has to make, you know, it's not my business or any of our business to tell sovereign countries, oh, you need to do this or that for retail CBDC. But it's very possible to have wholesale CBDCs and get some of those benefits in the wholesale markets or the institutional banking markets without having to wrestle with the questions around what does privacy look like in a retail CBDC world? That, now, those are questions that maybe can be addressed successfully, but that's a separate conversation almost. It's, it's super important, particularly, um, I think, given that we're heading into an election year soon in the U.S., that we sort of make these differentiations. From you know all of this research, regardless of whether it's the U.S. or the U.K., Europe, Japan, China, all of the work and research that is being done, you know, we learn things. The central banks learn things each time. The market learns things and the participants and the pilots learn things. And those learnings are very valuable and they in themselves become standards or potential standards in terms of just leading the first thoughts around what might principles or, or appropriate principles be for such a digital currency. And I think, you know, many countries are involved in those. But let's get to, to market size for a minute. You know, we've been talking about digital money. We talked a bit about tokens and tokenization. As an analyst, putting your analyst hat on, how are you thinking about just, just some market numbers around the impacts of some of these technological developments? Uh, one of the things we called out in our report was we thought that when it came to private sector assets, so digital securities, trade finance, you could be looking at a TAM target addressable market of anywhere around $5 trillion by the end of this decade. I know $5 trillion sounds like a very big number, maybe a number I pulled out from thin air, but the underlying markets we're talking about are huge. Let's take the corporate debt market. 
the corporate debt, quasi-sovereign market. By that, I mean World Bank, folks like that issuing bonds. And often these quasi-sovereigns like the World Bank are at the forefront of innovation. So the first blockchain bond, I believe, was issued by the World Bank in Australia a few years back. These sovereigns or quasi-sovereigns often, they don't need to lead innovation because they've got a huge investor demand anyway, but sometimes they have the opportunity or the ability to lead innovation. And the corporate debt market and the quasi-sovereign debt market's over $100 trillion. So just a percent of that moving is huge. That market today, end of last year, was north of $100 trillion. In our report, we look at 2030 and we say that market's going to be just growing at a sort of nominal GDP, global GDP, is going to be close to $190 trillion. We just need 1% of that to move over to blockchain-based, tokenized-based solutions. You've got a $2 trillion market there alone for corporate and quasi-sovereign debt. And that's the kind of approach we used. Alternative assets, particularly illiquid alternative assets, by that I'm thinking private equity, venture capital, so P and VC, that's a much smaller overall market. Today, estimates put it at about $6 trillion total. We think a much higher percentage of that market, of the ALS market, is going to go to blockchain-based solutions than, say, liquid sovereign debt or quasi-sovereign debt. So in our report set, 10% of alt assets, private equity, venture capital, and for real estate funds, a bit lower. We said between 5 and 10% will move to blockchain-based solutions. If you add all that up, you're looking at about $2 trillion of PEVC and real estate fund size on blockchain by the end of this decade. So that's, to summarize, about $2 trillion for corporate and quasi-sovereign debt, $2 trillion for real estate, PEVC funds. And then there's the repo market. Basically, it's more of sort of bank plumbing stuff. There, we think you could have another trillion dollars out of a $25 trillion market today moving to blockchain-based solutions. So that, that we go into all of this in more detail in the report. So plug for the report, have a look at the report. But there you're talking about a ballpark of about $5 trillion already. And then there's a trade finance piece. Um, today, the trade finance market's about $8 trillion dollars. Industry estimates, these aren't our estimates, these are sort of industry estimates, talk about it being closer to $12 trillion by the end of the decade. And a lot of trade finance experts we spoke to and quoted in our report were pegging anywhere between 8 and 10% of the trade finance market by the end of the decade, moving to blockchain-based solutions. Now, a lot of projects have failed so far, and it's really easy to throw out big numbers like I'm doing. And the big question is, what's changing so in trade finance what's changing is uk law is changing this year in digital securities what's changing is that the buy side the investor base who often originate these assets or buy these assets um, they are looking more closely at these solutions so there's a sort of change on the supply side if you like by supply side i mean people who basically manufacture and create these p and vc and real estate funds they're looking to distribute their funds in a different way using tokenized assets. So there are all these changes happening in place, but you need to have a stable or supportive regulatory and legal environment. The technologists and the innovation folks can do whatever they want to. Ultimately, money, it has to have a legal underpinning. 
And that's why I think this UK trade law change is huge. That's why I think you know, you're going to need jurisdictions, whether it's in the US, the UK, Singapore, giving some greater degree of legal clarity and certainty to some of these products. Because without that, none, you know, we can come up with big numbers, but none of this will be materialized. You need that legal clarity and certainty, which I think we're going to get in the trade space and hopefully in the investor space as well. So with that, let me ask you just quickly about games and gaming, just looking forward and perhaps we can wrap up with with your view on where do you see the gaming industry going with all of these dynamics if you take into account needing a legal underpinning for what we do in terms of financial tokens or other digital money and how that plays into then the future of gaming? How are you seeing that future play out and what that will mean for the gaming industry, perhaps. So, like I said, when it came to trade finance, watch the UK Parliament. For gaming, I'd be watching what game developers and game studios are doing in Asia, particularly Korea and Japan. Most of the gaming world is heavily Asia-centric, or should I say mobile gaming world. Like with mobile money, Asia moved to, or with phones, many of us who were growing up in the US or the UK or Europe, you had a desktop computer before you went to a, a mobile phone. So for many people, particularly slightly older people in the US and the UK, the internet isn't synonymous with the mobile phone. For nearly everyone in Asia, nearly everyone in Asia, and the Middle East and Africa and Latin America, the internet and the mobile phone are the same thing because most people access the internet through the smartphone. Ditto mobile money. Think about the revolution in mobile money where there was the original almost web one version through feature phones with M-Pesa in Kenya or the kind of web two version in China with Alipay and WeChat Pay. Mobile money came with the phone. There was no credit card intermediate step or debit card intermediate step. Well, there was, but it was very limited in size and scope. Unlike, say, in the US and the UK, where in the 1990s, most middle class people, most people in those countries are middle class, most middle class people had credit cards or debit cards. So just like we've seen this, these jumping, you know, this kind of leapfrogging in large parts of the non-Western world, the same has happened in gaming and in games they've gone straight to mobile games and what we're seeing or what we've been seeing in the last few years is that a lot of the innovation in games has come out of these countries specifically i called out japan and korea but asia in general and you're gonna see in the next 12 to 18 months a lot of web3 like or blockchain based innovations being dropped into web2 games so this is going to be different to the, you know, like during COVID, we had these play to earn games and there was a big increase of interest in to the web three games, but most of those web three games were built by technologists or they were built by folks interested in crypto or blockchain first. And what you're seeing now, and we're seeing examples that, that, I, that I'm interacting with in you know my daily life and my working life is you're seeing a lot of web two game developers moving into web three like solutions so these are folks who've done very successful gaming careers in web two saying hey i want to add a token element to my game uh, it doesn't have to be a decentralized cryptocurrency it could be 
what's a token? It's, a, it's just a way of transferring value, right? Or a way of showing membership or, a, or it could be a loyalty token or a utility token. What they want to show is the main game doesn't really change. It's still that hit game you played previously in Web2. I'm just adding in ownership elements into it. I'm adding in new ways of transferring values, new ways of doing payments. And in our report, we've got a couple of people. If I had to call out one, we have a great interview with the former head of gaming at YouTube. He talks about his career of showing up at YouTube so many years ago and making YouTube big in gaming. When he showed up at YouTube, it wasn't obvious that YouTube had a role to play in gaming. Um, now, if you've got kids or if you're a wannabe kid, people watch other people play games. Now, that didn't seem very logical 10 years ago, right? That's a huge market today. And then when it was mobile gaming, when it first came along, a lot of active gamers, professional gamers said, you know, mobile gaming will never take off. Similarly, watching other people play games, people said, this is never going to take off. And there's been the same kind of pushback to tokens in games and blockchain-based games. And what we're seeing is like a version two of that now, where you're seeing people who are good at building games saying, hey, I'm going to build a game with a blockchain element, rather than people who are good at blockchain or crypto saying, can I take my crypto knowledge into the gaming world? So that's the small but huge difference that's taking place. And I think the world of gaming, particularly when it comes to the consumer side and consumer payments, so consumer tokens, consumer blockchain, and all of this meshes together into one big integrated thing. Certainly. I do look forward to seeing how the industry develops, and I certainly look forward to hearing more about your son playing games and, and where that money goes, if it ever manages to come back to you. So with that, thank you very much, Ronit, for being with us here today and for sharing your views and, and work on money, on tokenization, and, and certainly on, on gaming, as we just discussed. And I'm sure we'll hit you back on questions on Web 2.5, Web 3, as that progresses. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IF website as well at if.com.